Houston at Microsoft Inc. And I'm coming to you to bring you the stateofsecurity.com podcast. This time around, I'm going to be joined by a great and longtime friend, Mark Carey. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff from the future of technology to, uh, I think we cover AI, we talk about uh, hardware hacking, we talk a lot about the human side of where uh, some of the, the information security uh, programs are going today. And there's some really cool stuff in there. So we spend about 45 minutes with him. Uh, we'll have a little bit of an outtake. And then uh, after that, stick around at the end of the podcast. Make sure you check it out because at the very end is the short for this month. And it's with Jim Clune. Uh, Jim Clune is one of my oldest and uh, best friends and technical mentors. Uh, I actually met him right after college. And we spent some time together working for a couple of companies, but he taught me Linux. Uh, he really encouraged me as a young hacker and helped me build up a career and some technical skills and really helped me take it to the next level. So check that out. I think he's got some powerful things to say. Uh, this time around, everything is uh, looking to be pretty good in terms of sound quality. So uh, thanks for that. And as always, remember that uh, this podcast is brought to you by the blog stateofsecurity.com. Check it out there. We're posting a lot of uh, updated content, some pretty cool stuff going on. We get uh, posts from all the folks at MSI, uh, lots of our uh, guest posts from folks that have been on the blog and uh, on the podcast. So uh, check them out. Uh, a lot of returning folks and there's a lot of good information out there. So uh, make sure you take advantage of it. And as always, uh, the secondarily, my company, Microsolved Inc., that's M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D.com, uh, those folks uh, really make this podcast possible. And uh, the company's been great to let me spend a lot of time working on the podcast and has really supported it and, and helped us bring in uh, some amazing speakers and, and uh, some fantastic uh, guests on the podcast and, and really helped promote it. So, Thanks very much to uh, Microsoft. If you're interested in having some uh, vulnerability assessment, penetration testing, uh, professional services around information security, or if you have an interest in honeypot technology, uh, that's some of the stuff that we do. And then, of course, now we have our own intelligence platform called Tiger Tracks, where we're doing all kinds of stuff from passive assessments to threat intelligence. Uh, to code of conduct monitoring for major sports teams and brands and financial companies around the world. So check that out, microsolve.com. And I hope you really enjoy this episode because I think uh, this is one of the amazing uh, times where you really got a couple of just great moments out of Fork and um, some fantastic stuff out of uh, Jim Clune. So check it out. And as always, uh, touch base with me on Twitter. I'm at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N. That's at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N on Twitter. And I would love to hear uh, what you think of the podcast and any anybody that you'd like us to interview, uh, let us know. So that said, without further ado, get ready. Here comes Mark Carey, otherwise known as Fork. <laughs> Hey there, security peeps. It's Brent Houston from stateofsecurity.com, the podcast. 
And today it is a whopping 83 degrees here in Columbus, Ohio. It's a sunny, hot, steamy day. And I know that because I am sitting next to one of my oldest friends who unfortunately is also a big, heavy, sweaty dude, but that's all right. We've known each other for a long time now. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me in the studio today, one of my oldest friends, more than 20 years we've known each other. Can you believe that? It's a lot of trouble to get into. It is. It it's is. a long it's a time, two decades of trouble. This is Mark Carey, also known as Fork. Now, Fork, besides being a 20-year uh, problem child along with me, I mean, we've known each other <laughs> since the BBS days, Yeah. right? Um, you're also a DEF CON goon. I am. You go back how far at DEF CON? Uh, my first DEF CON was DEF CON 3, actually. So I was living in Vegas at the time. And I heard about this hacker conference, and I said, wait, wait, hacker, there are others like me. And uh, went and made 200 of the best friends you'll ever keep, right? So That's awesome. So you've been a DEF CON goon. Um, you have done a bunch of, like, high-level, uh, really cool stuff, super secret ninja squirrel stuff over the last 20 years. And uh, we'll get into some of that here shortly. But what else did the folks need to know about you? I would put the emphasis on squirrel because, you know, paying attention to one project at a time is a challenge for me. Um, so, you know, to give you a quick life story, uh, I started off writing video games, and you know, before that, I was writing demos for the Amiga computer, and before that, it was 8-bit world. Uh, from there, moved into all kinds of interesting business computing stuff, then government computing stuff, network security, all the related kind of associated fields thereof, and it's been a lot of fun, actually. I, I do special projects now for various companies, governments, etc. Uh, only our government, mind you. But. So that is very cool. And I know, you know, we've hung around all the cool places. We've been around the world together. We've done a lot of fun stuff, a lot of great hacking. But when I first met you, and this is, man, it's so hard to believe. When I first met you, I didn't have gray hair. I didn't have to have glasses. But uh, when I first met you, you were doing a lot of software development and really I mean, you were part of the early web development stuff. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. And you sort of, in those days, the web was really about submitting and sending data. Now it's really become more of an, a platform for applications. Tell us what it was like working in that transition from the flat web to sort of the application web. So, so a lot of these transitions that you're describing were, were definitely interesting. It's actually part of the evolution of any technical cycle. Uh, if you look at what happened in the 70s with serial, for example, initially you could send things back and forth. Then you started having people who wrote BBSs that would paint the screen with pretty ANSI graphics and that sort of thing. So there were layers upon layers, and that's what we as human beings do. Um, at the time, I mean, 1997, I think it was roughly, we had just discovered this new thing called HTML, and this is you know now maybe four or five years old. Uh, so it was something new. But it was also being driven principally as a uh, data display system, meaning you would have a substitution from either a bash script or a, you know, something that would render in some variables, and that could come from a database or from a backend application or whatever. Um, it was very, very simple in, in retrospect. And today we have applications that are a whole lot more complicated. We have things that have their own, you know, what we call restful endpoints, for example, where you can actually have this interface to the database that then has an authentication layer to it and then can you know, access stored data very simply for whatever presentation front end you want. So we've become a lot more uh, presentation agnostic 
and the actual web layer itself has become, to all intents and purposes, the data layer. So if you think of a traditional three-tier application, you used to have the database, you had some application logic, and then you had the presentation logic. And what's happened is a lot of this has moved forward towards the browser. So the database can actually be accessed for certain types of objects directly from the browser itself. So the presentation's migrated forward. And we're also putting a lot heavier trust on JavaScript, which is not a great idea, in my opinion, because we've seen how that can end. Um, anybody who's familiar with security and finds an open API that doesn't really have much guarding it has discovered that, well, I can host all kinds of fun stuff to this and change backend data. And, you know, I can change the price of this flat screen TV from $9.99 to $0.30. Cents. Well, that's fun. <laughs> now, I remember, I mean, I think um, we're going to, we're going to introduce some friends of ours that we've known together in this conversation. So uh, I remember sitting with you and a gentleman we'll call Osceola, and we were having lunch. We were all three consulting for a very large bank, and we were having lunch in the atrium, and we were talking about what the future of the web was going to be like. Yes. And uh, I can remember you telling us that someday – uh, there would literally be applications on the internet where you could uh, walk into a virtualized business and uh, in a 3D sort of avatar uh, do business. And I remember all of us, you know, laughing about uh, about that. But we're not that far away from that. And and you've seen things like uh, Third Life and and some of these solutions coming. So I guess my question to you, Fortis, is looking back. It, it, you know, think back to those days. Mm -hmm. How did you know that was coming? What? How did you see that the the web would evolve like that? So, so there's two factors there. The first factor is that technology continues to evolve and often does simply for its own sake. Um, the presentation layer of the web is so easy to use, meaning it's so easy to migrate data to and from. It's a lot simpler than your traditional binary packed client server pro you know, protocols. Now we have you know, HTML, which was then you know, what we had, but it's a subset of XML. So XML can be used to describe almost anything in some level of detail, and often is these days. Uh, in addition to that, the human desire to get to a position where it's easy to use something is something that's continued on. I mean, if we remember, again, back to the 70s with text-based games, you know, you're standing outside a White House, there's a mailbox here. Well, you know, we all played Zork, at least the older generation among us did. Open mailbox, right? right? Exactly. That's what Open you do, mailbox. yeah. Well, today, we have a whole set of other layers that are built upon this. And those layers are built on their predecessors to some extent. So we desire something that's essentially a natural environment for us to interact with. And so we've got, you know, a few billion years of evolution that say, hey, I'd like to be able to pick up object X and examine it. Well, right now, we're not quite there yet, but with the advents of uh, things like Google's Glass project and the, uh, the new microburst radar chips that they're starting to, to use, uh, which can give you, I think, 20,000 samples per second of spatial data. So you can use your hands as they're meant to be used. And that gives the radar application the ability to see where each finger is. And with the display, 
you don't get tactile feedback, but you can see and manipulate things in 3D. So if you remember, what was it, Johnny Mnemonic, if I remember correctly, we used to joke and call it Johnny Moronic because <laughs> that Keanu Reeves, was, yeah, <laughs> he was he was a bit silly. Uh, <clears throat> but the point is, being able to actually page from web page to web page, that's a reality today with this type of technology. Uh, it's only going to get more interesting as we can develop the ability to create tactile feedback, as we can create the ability to create truly three-dimensional lasers painted on retinas using something like DLP, for example. Uh, things are going to change. And you could see all of that 20-plus years ago. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I can remember you uh, talking about this. Um, and, and I'll tell you, it really, looking back in my memory, it it really reminds me of a lot of the talks that Emmanuel Goldstein used to give. Um, Emmanuel Goldstein, of course, I'm talking, I'm not making reference to the 1984 character, but uh, in fact, the owner and editor of 2600 Magazine. And uh, I can remember, you know, you really kind of engaging at that level uh, about where the web would go and, and mm -hmm. talking about it. Tell me, at what point did you really have a feel that the age of the web application, right, would, mm -hmm. would kind of become a thing? I know you worked at Sun mm -hmm. and, you know, the Sun mantra was sort of the network is the computer. Right, for, is, for a time. And then it would go backwards. <laughs> so they, they were a little schizoid about that, but uh, it, there was a lot of uh, consideration for basically distributed data systems. And the ability right now for us to interact with other sources is becoming amazing. Like I was talking about RESTful endpoints. Now, if you want to get the channel lineup for a given TV provider, for example, there's RESTful endpoints for that. You know, there's there's a list, and I don't recall the top the site off the top of my head, but it's it's a wonderful site of RESTful endpoints. Right? Or there's a bunch of SOAP endpoint sites, or the, you know, whatever technology you choose to use. It's all HTML-born, um, and it's all there to provide you with data so you can customize your presentation. Now, whether that's a three-dimensional you know, presentation, and you can look, at, you know, look outside of a virtual window, and although you're in a bunker 200 feet below ground, and you can see the cameras, and you can see some floating text that says, hey, it's you know, 35 degrees Celsius out, it's, you know, the wind speed is... You know, 20 knots, well, whatever, it doesn't matter, whatever you want to present, uh, or whether it's something that's actually going straight into a neural interface. So was it at it was, Sun that you really kind of had that realization that the, web, that the web would become the basis for application? Yes, it's going to become the central transport, because human beings like simplicity. So we have, in the past, used things like uh, you know, carrier pigeons. Now we use packets of a slightly more speedy nature using TCP or UDP, but on top of that, we also have a simpler layer now of HTTP, and all of these things build on each other. So you end up with something that's um, something that's, that's a cascading effect of technologies building on each other until they become indistinguishable from, from reality. Now, could we restart it and go back to the beginning and do something better? Yes, we could, but is this likely to happen? No. Uh, human beings don't like redundant work, we don't like to reinvent wheels, as is evidenced by the fact that we're still using the same design you know, millions of years ago that's been refined over and over. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we, there's going to come a point where there's going to be protocols that through the trial of fire come to the surface. And those application protocols are things like XML, which we've seen become dominant. There are things like um, the Atom standard that we've seen 
becomes dominant. And those standards, as they, they pass these trial by fire elements, are going to suit themselves to the technological needs of the day. Now, there are times when we will go back and reevaluate things. I think that virtual reality is going to be one of those. We're going to need to consider all sorts of other factors, and we're going to have to consider something that's going to be a much more um, autonomous web, meaning that you can actually take components from a client system. So if you have your visor on and your computer is caching data from all over the Internet, uh, maybe somebody's avatar is hosted in Bangladesh, and that avatar information, the texture, the framework, you know, the wireframe mesh, uh, all of that information is going to be transferred to your local machine and probably cached in some way. Our current protocols aren't doing a great job on some of those. I mean, we have web proxies, we have some other things, but there's nothing really suited to that yet. So there's, there's going to be a continued evolution in application layer protocols as we continue to drive technology to its edge. And as new technology becomes available for presentation, like I said, be it an optical overlay uh, on your nervous system, then those standards and that data and that transfer language is going to change slightly, but it's all going to probably be built on top of a lot of these web app layers. And now, I think what's really interesting to me about that is as security folks, of course, uh, it's easier to secure the network, right? And, and we all right. want to focus on the network layer and then, gosh, we don't really have a perimeter anymore, so now we have to focus on this layer, that layer until now you're getting down to you know, metadata and transactional level authentication and authorization Absolutely. and controls. In the future, Mark, what does that look like? How do we secure data flows that have so many layers with such deep, intricate meaning of the data at that point? The simple answer is that right now we're not well suited to that. Mm-hmm. And how we go forward with this is gonna be a bit of a bit of what we have been doing and a bit of some new stuff as well. So the things that we have been doing, determining who we can talk to, for example, that's one layer. But as we increase our peripheral vision, as it were, in terms of the data we see, it's hard to do that because you can't just put blinders on every person and expect that to work. It's, it's not going to. So we have to start becoming cogniz- you know, cognizant of our contents. Or, uh, we call it content cognition, as it were. So the systems of tomorrow are going to be more aware of what they're displaying and where that data came from and what its actual purpose is. So as an example, right now, today, we have process isolation. We have memory fences that prevent uh, random access into physical memory through a virtualization technology, or virtualization of memory, for example. In the same sense, there are going to be additional layers of that virtualization that have to occur. And will there be faults? Absolutely. Uh, but by and large, it's going to serve the purpose of its design. So it sounds a lot like what you're talking about is the convergence uh, of the explosion of data mm-hmm. and the convergence of machine learning yes. to essentially create real-time controls that are able to interpret and manipulate the security, the, the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of different parts of the data stream. And that is absolutely correct. Um, there, there are some additional things to think about on that as well. Sorry, give me a moment to collect my thoughts. So this is a big topic. And those elements and the security tagging that goes along with that, we're going to have to have some mechanism for authenticating who this came from, but doing so in a way that's not centralized authority-based and that's not um, censorable. 
as well. Censurable might be a better term for this. Uh, right now, there's you know every, every crazed dictator in the world would love to be able to shut down things they don't want your people to see. And the fact of the matter is, we have seen many exercises in thought control over the years. Um, everything from, of course, you know, everybody has to bring the World War II issue up. And so the, the concept behind this, though, is, is that by controlling what somebody sees, you can control what they think, because we are, in a sense, a stimuli response machine. Um, if, if you doubt that, look at any study of organized religion from an academic perspective. It's, it's enlightening, to say the least. Um, and so you think that literally you'll we'll see development of controls that essentially firewall certain concepts or parts of the data stream based on content. Yes. Interesting. I think, I think and I think that there's going to be a hardware assistance on that eventually as well. I mean, right now today we have virtual machine isolation at the hypervisor layer. Why haven't we extended this further than this? I mean, right now, so we, we, we go back to a discussion of systemics architecture. We have von Neumann architecture versus Harvard architecture, for example. Now, in von Neumann, the stack is comprised of both data and code dump references. In Harvard, those two are kept separate. Well, why? Well, by isolating the code jump references, it becomes much more difficult to corrupt it and create a buffer overflow, for example. And in the same sense, if we extrapolate what's happened there, we're going to see data isolation occur between portions of the system. So if we have something that comes in from the network, it has a visualization tag on it. That tag is going to have to be respected by the system in such a way that the memory will not be used as code, for example. So by pushing visualization data, texture data, three-dimensional data, all of these things that quantify what you should be seeing, it becomes possible to render things without as much possible threat. Now, I say that it's going to be a layer upon a layer upon a layer kind of thing, because even if you know it's visual data, it's possible to create deception, create illusion with that. And if you're relying on that, for example, in a medical health and safety situation, that could become as lethal as a code injection overflow. And it's really, I mean, I can see where that is a, a great logical extension, and it certainly is something that we should consider for uh, future generations and especially try to communicate to young security people. Mm -hmm. But let's translate that back into sort of a modern view. And I think mm -hmm. an easy way to, to, to segue and do that is to tell just a little bit of a story. So please indulge me for about 90 seconds. Um, during your time at Sun, we both worked with a gentleman named Michael Holhorst, who sadly passed away several years ago and, and uh, we miss very much. But um, Michael talked a lot about software freedoms and the idea of sort of closed walled market spaces. I remember having a number of conversations with him about DRM and the way that um, walled gardens of code would emerge. And I, and I can remember you and I both uh, pushing back against that idea that, that folks would never trade um, software freedom and intellectual freedom for uh, for sort of that walled garden. Yet that is the very thing that we see taking place in the mobile world today with things like Apple. So I've heard you kind of riff on where the future of controls is going. And we know that, I've just told that story about Michael, tie those together for me. Today, why in your mind do consumers make that trade? Why do they agree to that sort of intellectual filtering um, 
you know, as a safety measure. So this is an argument as old as structured human society is. Uh, if you consider what happened many, many years ago with the tribes of people, nomadic tribes of people, you had a chieftain and you had a priest or a uh, medicine man who both professed to be able to protect you best. Now, whether you traded your freedom to the medicine man or the chieftain, that uh, choice was really the same choice. It was more of an illusionary choice because you were trading your freedom and your independence of action to behave as you saw fit for the greater good of the tribe, as it were. Now, in the same sense, trading your freedom for security is something that's been a fairly common theme, uh, honestly, since 9-11, and there's been a lot of uh, pontification on this. So are we, in fact, trading our freedom for security? I would say in some cases, yes, we are. And this can actually be typified by two decidedly different mobile platforms. Uh, take the iPhone versus the Android platform, for example. The iPhone's aim is to lock down the execution of the code and the provisioning of that device in such a way that it can't be done from anyone, you know, any, any channel other than an authorized channel. The Android tends to be a little bit freer in that regard. They'll give away your device unlock code, so you can boot an alternate operating system, or you can reload a different, uh, you know, different uh, combobulation of the Android platform on there. Well, in the same sense, this is a, an argument that's as old as time. So where are we going to go with this? I suspect it's going to stay in the middle of the road. And the reason that that happens is because we have a, a fairly decent statistical average that says there are those who will err to the side of freedom and there are those who will err to the side of security or perceived security in order to further their way of thinking and life. Now, for those of you who uh, who can't see us, obviously, all the listeners, uh, I'm, I'm looking across the table here and uh, I'm carrying an iPhone and uh, my good friend Mark is carrying an Android. And I also, however, have an iPhone in my pocket. So you have two so with have you. two phones. Why would I want two phones? So why, why would you choose to have both platforms? And, and what was the deciding point in that? So there's, there's several factors. The first, frankly, is ease of use. Apple's done an excellent job with ease of use. If I want to listen to some of my music that I've you know, legitimately purchased, which is what I do these days, then I can look at that and I can do that. Now, if Apple were to decide to, for whatever reason, cut my music off, my attitude towards their desire might be a little bit different. And you can look at any dystopian novel and figure out how that might go. Uh, the Android, on the other hand, is a lovely platform. However, it's also not quite as secure. And why is it not quite as secure? Because it's a little bit more free. And again, this goes back to the classic argument, and I think it's going to continue this way, realistically, for the foreseeable future. The point of it becomes that if any entity holds sway over a device that you have in your pocket, you are essentially selling part of your freedom in order to have and use that functionality. In the same sense, if it does not do so, they are granting you a different level of freedom. There's a, there's a lot of people who used to argue about the DMCA, and if I can't take the back off of it, I don't own it. And I would actually say it's a fairly valid argument. Uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act is a DMCA, for those who don't know what it is. Uh, it precludes you from reverse engineering any kind of hardware or software technology in the interest of circumvention of copyright 
and has been very, very liberally interpreted by a number of courts. Uh, now, this isn't just pontification on your part because no. I know you well enough to know, so I'm going to dig into some here, some stuff. And if we get into things you don't want to talk about, please just uh, cut me off. <laughs> okay. But um, you're not just pontificating about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. You've actually done some hardware hacking, mm -hmm. um, basically even for governments where you've uh, you've recovered some data that was generally thought to be non-recoverable. Is that correct? Can you can you tell us a, a, at least touch on that subject? Um, I, I will say that, frankly, it's much more difficult to make something unrecoverable than you might think if you want to actually make it long-term storage. And uh, Bruce Schneier is a very, very wise man. He actually said that if you want to attack a cryptographic system, don't attack the crypto. That's stupid. Attack the implementation. Um, so the implementation is the hardware and software that it runs on. And people will make mistakes. Despite the best intentions and best plans, they screw up. Um, and so the you can think of sort of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act as a band-aid over a gaping wound of mistaken uh, implementations, which um, in some cases you've been able to take advantage of mm -hmm. to recover data that was um, that was assumed to be irrecoverable. Yeah, and I, and I would argue also that, that frankly this is a symptom of a much larger issue. Uh, we constantly see legislative bodies, both in our country and any other country, honestly, trying to apply a legislative fix to something they truly have no grasp on. Uh, so they, they don't have an understanding of the technology. They don't have an understanding of the real issue. So they get to a, a level of understanding that can be politicized, and then they try to slap some legislation on it, which stops the bad guys from doing nothing, prevents the good guys from actually doing anything to learn and study the problem, and then usually causes things to become exacerbated anyway. And I know you're continually playing with hardware hacking. Um, you might as well be wearing a iVoid Warranties t-shirt. Um, in fact, uh, folks, if you're listening, um, Mark, when he came to visit me today in the studio, he brought me a number of goodies and torn down devices and uh, everything from what appears to be some sort of car, uh, car diagnostic piece to... I see a ham radio, uh, a microcontroller, and some sort of keychain that appears to uh, contain digital data. So you are a, a true hardcore hardware hacker. I am. I have a basement full of things that my wife doesn't understand and wonders why I spend money on. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is the entire world is full of interesting things, and all of our digital existence is built on these systems to some extent. The... I have a pretty serious history with hardware hacking. I mean, from the time I was about, say, eight or ten years old, uh, my dad had got me one of those Radio Shack 301 electronics kits that, uh, that you know, allowed me to tinker with things and play with things. And then by the time I was in my early teens, I was repairing Commodore 64s and VIC-20s and all these legacy 8-bit computers because once you understand this stuff, oh, well, that's pretty easy. And uh, it was a good way to make some extra cash when somebody would blow up their Commodore 64 and I had to replace a UART or two on it. So I've been doing hardware hacking for a very long time. So if you kind of think back over that career, what is the thing that the major things that hardware hacking has taught you about our modern life? What kind of view and lens has it given you um, about the way that we live today? So I would say that, that we're a lot more vulnerable than we think we are. Uh, 
so the things that protect our systems, the things that protect our technology are much more flimsy than we give them credit for being. Uh, take the encoding number on a key that allows you to remotely unlock a car, for example. So if there's a interface that's available most likely, again, over the web, that you can ask a question to with a VIN number, and it returns some interesting statistical information and some type of a keying number, for example. Um, that's the kind of thing where you might be able to use that to synthesize a new key based on an understanding of the algorithm, the frequencies involved, and things of that nature. So none of this is actually, uh, well, some of it is rocket science, as it were, but it's not hard rocket science. And it's all stuff that's been around for a really long time. So understanding how the devices are vulnerable has given me a terrifying awareness for many of these things. Uh, take, for example, magnetic, or I'm sorry, not magnetic card, but uh, rather proximity card readers and writers. So I don't know if you guys know this, but you can buy for $39 on the internet from a place called AliExpress.com a card reader writer that will clone a prox card. Well, what does that buy you? Well, access to just about anything. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, and these systems are not using the full security features. I mean, there's a protocol called Wiegand that most building security systems use. And if you want some information on that, it's a great, great research topic. Uh, but being able to take these cards and copy that information and write it to a new card, well, the manufacturer says, oh, we shouldn't be allowed to do that. Well, the thing is, the manufacturer has other subcontractors who also market cards. Well, in order to do this, the same factory produces a whole bunch of these cards, moves them to the different distributors, and then writes a serial number on each of those. If you happen to know the factory, you can actually buy the blank card and write any manufacturer ID you want on there, or any serial number, or anything else. So, and the issue with it is, is if you have a writable sector zero on these cards, you can use them to do whatever you want to do. And so I think what the, the point that you're making, yeah, so sorry. to make sure I understand it, mm -hmm. is that the veneer is very thin and yes. that a lot of these sort of security controls and things that we think of as being mm -hmm. um, closer to bulletproof are really not. And I, I know we've had, we did a great uh, interview with uh, Josh Anderson on this very podcast where we talked about industrial control and uh, power, gas, water, energy, electric, uh, uh, natural gas, that kind of stuff. Um, in, in that case, these very same issues are in these critical systems mm -hmm. that are in a lot of these consumer systems. Mm -hmm. And so is your take on that that in the future, some of that veneer is going to wear thinner? Or is your take that eventually we'll be able to solve those problems using things like machine learning controls and uh, other advances in computing technology? So, so there's two parts to this. Uh, the first part of it is, is that will technology continue to improve? Yes. Will machine learning help us with this? Absolutely. However, I would also like to bring attention to the fact that things like building control systems still use protocols that are things like RS-486, or I'm sorry, RS-485, which is a differential serial byte, which has been around since the 50s or 60s. Um, so everything's built upon everything else, and the inherent vulnerabilities in the systems do start to stack up to a point where if I can get one of these readers off a wall, put in an intersection chip, literally it can be a single chip in some cases, power it from the line, hook up the, the RS-485 lines, 
and all of a sudden I've got a chip that if I present a certain card ID, it's simply going to replay the last IDs observed until one works. So essentially what you're what we're looking at mm -hmm. is as long as we continue to rely on older technologies, we're inheriting the compounding vulnerabilities of those over time. Mm -hmm. We may be able to offset some of that with more rapidly applied controls through machine learning and, and maybe they're deeper in the stack, mm -hmm. but we're still inheriting all those vulnerabilities, right? They're we still are. out there. Yeah, we absolutely are. And, yeah. and I think that realistically, because of the way that we as human beings do our jobs, we try to use things over. You know, I mean, we, we touched on that earlier in the podcast about, oh, well, the wheel's been around for an awful lot of years. You know, I mean, sure, there's going to come a point where we have a disruptive technology, maybe anti-grav slits or something to that effect. But right now, as long as that stays in play, we're still using the same wheel. And if it happens to be a tire, it's still vulnerable to the same puncture on the side. So I'm going to take this to a different level. I'm going to make it more personal okay. because I think the future that you're talking about is very interesting. And if you're, if you're an information security person by now, you should be paying very careful attention. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about this at a different layer. You have children. I do. And, you know, as a parent um, with an amazing depth of technical knowledge, how do you see the future in, in your mind? Do we get to that utopia version that you read so much about? Is it, or is what ahead is what is ahead of us the dystopian future that you that you see in so many sci-fi novels? To quote the Talking Heads, "Same as it ever was, same as it ever was." We're, we're going to continue to attempt to move towards both of these extremes. We're going to have the malcontents who want a dystopian future. We're going to have the ones who want a utopian future, who have perfect control over everything and the entire world therein. Um, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Uh, and there are two factors involved with that. One, human nature. And two, the decided lack of human ingenuity to the level that we would need to mathematically assure function. So let me draw on a story from the mid-60s. So at one point in time, one of the Apollo missions had a computer on it. It was a four-bit computer that could always get back to a known state. No matter how it was corrupted or how it was rebooted, it had a level of mathematical assurity that it would come back to a state where it could fly the rocket. As we get more and more complex and more and more variables enter the equation, it becomes impossible for us to have a mathematical assurity, which essentially prevents the utopian version from ever occurring. In the same sense, because of those very variables that can be corrupting factors and the fact that these can be often exploited, we also veer towards the dystopian portion. Now, those factors are frankly too complex for us to measure. Will it go one direction or the other? I don't think so. Uh, I think that if we look at history, we've seen it try to go in both directions for as long as we can see backwards. So we're going to be busy for a long time to come is the best way I can say that. And that means that we're going to have to take increasing measures and build an onion around the security systems that, around the systems we want to protect and indeed around our families. So does having children in your life and, and being a parent, the act of being a parent and watching your children grow up with this technology, does that give you a different view and has it changed your view 
of what that future might look like. I, I think it's made it a good bit more realistic. Um, I've watched uh, my children do things with technology I never thought they would. Um, I've, I've watched them use this stuff in ways it wasn't intended to be used, but yet are, are brilliant and beautiful. Um, I've also watched them do horrible things to it. So, it's... Beyond taking it for a swim in the fishbowl, you've watched them, uh, I would imagine, uh, misuse and abuse uh, those very same tools and techniques that, that we did when we were younger, Absolutely. only now more extreme. Absolutely. Yeah. And because of this, I have to think that, that my view is very much centered around this. And again, that comes down to human nature. Uh, statistically, you're going to have some variance at the extreme ends of the equations, but by and large, most of the time, people come back to something. Um, as an example, when the Amish go through their period of, uh, I don't remember the, the word for it, but it's the, their period of going wild for a bit, the vast majority of them still come back and live with their, their communities. Um, in the same sense, the vast majority of people are going to come back and live in the middle of their community as well. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what I've come to the conclusion with on my children. Now, it may take them a while to figure that out. I have a 19-year-old who's definitely going to take a while to figure that out, but she's absolutely wonderful and spectacular. <laughs> and, and, and in some senses, I, I've, and I've told her this as well, and this is just a, a brief aside, uh, children still see the world the way that it ought to be. So if you're a young information security person, don't always listen to your mentors and be free to challenge them because there are ways that you can look at the world that we can't anymore because we've accepted certain variables and certain factors in our equations. If you can change those and change the entire outcome based on that, try it. Learn it. Do something new. Do something good. And that's a great point. I mean, I, I think one of the biggest challenges that we, uh, that we hear continually on this podcast is getting younger security folks to engage in new ways and to, to look at things like uh, security and privacy um, in, in new ways. And we really do need young eyes and new brains on the problems. Um, and of course, you know, um, you and I, we've known each other a long time. You got more gray hair uh, than when I first met you. And um, I probably have three times the amount, uh, you know, as uh, those days. Um, so we have that gray out issue and we need young folks to, to come in and work on these problems. That said, Forkus, what is your advice? How, how are you talking to your children about things like privacy and software um, freedoms and intellectual freedom? So it depends on the day and it also depends on the child because trying to keep in my perspective of middle of the road and maintaining a certain level of the status quo perhaps um, it, it gives me a different kind of perspective than what they have and I, I suppose that when I hear them say something to the effect of that's stupid why are we doing it that way if my response is because that's just the way we've always done it I need to examine that and in terms of speaking to them about the freedoms of software and the freedoms of being able to do as they will digitally. Uh, I, I'm pretty adamant on the fact that it should go towards freedom. And the reasoning behind this is that if we go the other direction, 
eventually legislation follows. And then the only people who are free are criminals. So are you literally dropping Android devices in your children's hands and, and letting them play in an open space versus a walled garden? I actually, at some point in their life, do bring them over to different mobile platforms and different levels of freedom. Now, I think that there's a time and a place for everything. You, know, you wouldn't let your kindergartner go running amok in the middle of a five-lane highway. Um, you know, but you wouldn't tell your teenager they shouldn't drive on one either. Yeah. So or, you're looking for a middle of the ground even there. Well, I think that there's a progression that happens. And in the same sense, when they prove themselves able to handle something and show a certain degree of wisdom in dealing with it, that's when you can move them forward. So it's, it's very much a resistance training program, actually, where you... You have a certain level that the person can lift at a given time. A certain, you know, the child is capable of understanding and dealing with and is capable of uh, functioning uh, at, at that level. And as that level continues to increase, as they put effort into it, and they put learning into it, and they start to understand, ah, I probably shouldn't run that executable this website wants me to download. Hmm. Well, then I can take some of the controls off, which prevent them from running anything that's been downloaded. And let them see what happens. Right. Yeah. Or let them teach them how to use a virtual machine to see how horribly wrong things can go. Yeah. Or possibly teach them how to take over a malware control network. That's fun, too. <laughs> but then that's towards the more advanced spectrum. So let's do some rapid-fire questions. Okay. For just thank you for thank you for talking about the future and, and particularly bringing that down to a human uh, level. That is uh, definitely the focus of this podcast is finding the human side of, of technology and information security. So thanks for indulging me in that. Um, but let's, uh, let's just shift gears for a second. What's the one book that uh, folks that are listening to who might be interested in learning more about hardware hacking, um, what is, what's the one book or resource that they should be looking at? Oh, that's such a question. Um... I know that in the past you've told me about the hacking electronics book. Yeah. Um, but it, is that where they should start, or so? So honestly, if you're new to electronics, I would start with uh, the Horowitz book, which is the art of electronics. And the reasoning behind that is, is that as security people and as hackers, as it were, we learn to do things by intuition. The art of electronics is an older book. I think it's from the mid '90s. Uh, it was the last published edition, but it's also incredibly intuitive. And it'll teach you everything you need to know about analog electronics so you don't blow up your power supplies. And then it takes you into digital in a gentle way as opposed to trying to teach you everything all at once. Um, in addition, some of the resources that I would look at first and foremost are things like Arduinos. Mm -hmm. The reason is most of the boilerplate stuff has been done for you. If you want to switch a pin high or low, it can do that for you. And it can do it very, very easily. If you want to make a light blink, it's what kind of the equivalent of Hello World. Well, that's an easy way to do it. And all of the hard things have been thought about for you. Now, there's going to come a time when you move beyond kind of Atmel's you know, uh, bevy of offerings and maybe you get into ST Micros stuff and you get to SDM8s and SDM32s. And then you move on to more complicated systems and embedded devices. Um, but really, the Arduino is like the training wheels ground of, of it, learning that. It is. And yeah. there's a whole lot of form factors involved with the Arduino uh, platform. It's got a huge community around it that makes it really easy to learn uh, without a lot of pain and, and uh, specialized equipment. Yeah, and I know the price of entry is amazing. Um, just Josh Anderson, actually, uh, thank you, Josh, by the way, for doing this. He just sent me a whole bunch of uh, 
of Arduino micros that he got at the closing of Radio Shack. Mm -hmm. And um, it was literally like uh, $12, $15 per unit. So mm -hmm. um, almost nothing to get started uh, with these kids. Um, moving beyond that, if they wanted to learn about things like uh, programming or um, you know, mobile development, uh, where would you point someone to start learning about uh, the mobile environments and, and coding in that space? Uh, I would recommend you start with that or with, with a Android device. The iOS platform actually costs you money to play with. Uh, it's, I think, a $99 developer license for the Apple development license for that kind of stuff. Um, and in addition, the Apple technologies are uh, tied to their desktop platform's legacy stuff. Legacy APIs, legacy library, legacy layout, and while that's not a bad thing, it actually is very easy to program once you get familiar with it. Uh, once you become familiar with it, but Arduino, or I'm sorry, Android is is a very open standard. And if you want to play with mobile devices, Android's a great way to go. And you can get a cheap tablet for I think what seventy dollars. I've now, seen them even fifty now. Yeah, yeah. fifty dollars. Um, and and you can run the development kit on. Any, any platform, so yep. yeah, pretty pretty decent there. So you would suggest they look at, at that space. Mm -hmm. If they want to dig deeper into cryptography and sort of uh, some of the more arcane subjects that you've touched on, um, where would you suggest they look at for, for some of that? Besides Bruce Schneier's Applied Cryptography right. book, which is the, uh, by, by, uh, by default, the, the Bible of InfoSec. Uh, yeah, it's funny because that was where I was going to go with that. I mean, it's, it's a great <laughs> book. It's been one of my favorites. I mean, I have the first edition, the second edition. I think there's actually a third edition about to come out or has come out. I'm not sure. Mine's so worn, I'm not sure what edition it is. <laughs> well, it's red or blue, one of the two. It's so, red. It's, Mine is red. So I, yeah, I think that's the second edition. But uh, So that that's a good one. But there's a lot of good information out there on cryptography. And honestly, there's a, a large pool of resources available at places like Cryptome. Which is, you know, which helps you with cryptanalysis, which helps you with not only the understanding of the cryptography side of it, but also things like statistical analysis or, uh, you know, differential cryptographic analysis. So there's there, there's a large body of work out there that hasn't been collected and published. And you know, I mean, right now we're we're privileged to have Google, you know, the Oracle at Delphi in our pocket. So I mean, for those of us who remember a time before Google and before cell phones. You know, you'd get your Mountain Dew in a glass bottle in 1978, and you'd go sit down on the porch, and you'd open a book up and read it. Well, today you can open your tablet up and ask a question, and almost any topic that you want is available. Now, I would caution people, going directly to the question sometimes is not the way to do this. Sometimes asking the question of who can I trust about this information is also a good one first. You mean because it's on the internet, it's not true? <laughs> no, no, no. Sadly, uh, people aren't held to the same standards of ethics. And oh, who am I kidding? Uh, yeah, you can't you can't believe something just because it's on the internet. Anybody can push pixels. Now, I will tell you too. I, I want to point to another reference here. Um, not so much a reference as much as a learning story. Mm -hmm. There's a book by Neil Stephenson Stevenson. I can't remember how you pronounce his last name. Um, but uh, it's called Cryptonomicon, mm -hmm. and it is a story about cryptography in World War II, and it deals with uh, cryptanalysis and poor implementation and uh, 
bad seed values and it really explains it in such a nice way that uh, you come away with not just a great story but an actual understanding of cryptography and cryptanalysis mm -hmm. and at the back of that book um, uh, Schneier has written some information about a uh, implementation of two fish so you actually get a really nice piece of, uh, of crypto advice from a real-world expert so check that out uh, again, the, the book is called Cryptonomicon. It is big, so make sure you grab a margarita and sit on a beach somewhere and read it because uh, that's how I've done it the last couple of times. Very good book. Um, so closing up here, for first of all, thanks for joining us. Um, what would you say is the number one thing that you can think of that you would tell uh, security folks who are just getting into the business? What's your one piece of advice for them? I have to quote offensive computing, uh, I guess, or offensive security, I don't remember, Mateo's group, uh, try harder, because it's effort that's going to take you to the next level. So if you're stuck on a problem and you feel like giving up, try harder. You can do it. Information security is filled with a lot of 12 to 15 hour days, or more, depending on how your uh, passions flow. Uh, and that trying harder and trying smarter as well is sometimes necessary and don't be afraid of it it's hard work but it sure has been worth it over the last uh, almost 30 years for both of us yeah and and it gives you a level of wizardry that makes uh, you know the uh, non-technically savant among us go ooh and ah and heck you occasionally even make really good friends along the way yes you do so uh, that said uh, fork if folks want to hear more about the work that you do, they want to talk more with you personally, um, where can they find you on, on the web? Uh, the easiest way would probably be my blog, which at this point contains a whole bunch of stuff about FPGAs. And that is uh, at blog.ask-a.ninja. So blog.ask-a-ninja. Awesome. And uh, do you also, are you on Twitter or any of the social media networks? Uh, I am, and I'm on Twitter as Forkus, P-H-O-R-K-U-S. Uh, um, don't have a Forkus Facebook page, but uh, I don't really have any compunction to make one. But uh, you can definitely reach me through Twitter or on the blogosphere. And, and if they happen to be at DEF CON, want to buy a beer and pick your brain, uh, where can they find you at DEF CON? Uh, usually, actually, this year I'm in contest and events. So if you're at DEFCON, I'm in the CNE area and have been for a number of years past. I've gotten to, I think it's where they put the old ones out to pasture for the most part. So <laughs> we, uh, I've done everything from stints and security and reg and all of the other departments at this point, including vendor. But by and large, if you go into the contest and events area, you know that I'm working all day Saturday there, so I will be there and uh, hopefully we'll see you there. DEFCON's a great show. Uh, it's, it's the biggest collection that I've ever encountered of really smart, really creative, really interesting human beings. So and I'll tell you, just come on over, give Fork a big hug and, and a handshake, and uh, just start talking to him because uh, you totally won't regret it. So, uh, again, Mark, thanks for, for joining us. For those folks out there, the listeners, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to statussecurity.com and our podcast. Please check out the blog, and if you want to touch base with me, uh, you can do that. I'm on Twitter at at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N. And uh, stay tuned for some more closeout information and a short on this very podcast 
Uh, thanks for joining us, everyone. And until next time, uh, stay safe out there. Hey there, security peeps. This is Brent Houston from Microsoft Inc. and stateofsecurity.com. I wanted to say thank you very much for spending time with us and thanks for listening to this month's episode. If you'd like to learn more about Microsoft Inc., you can do so on the web. We are at microsolved.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D.com or stateofsecurity.com if you'd like to check out our blog. You can also reach out anytime and talk to me on Twitter. I'm at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N, and I would love to hear from you. Microsoft is, of course, the sponsor of this podcast, and uh, they have a wide variety of security services from pen testing to application security to policy and process consulting, risk assessment, and a bunch of deeply technical uh, work all the way down to the circuit level of testing devices. So over 20 years experience, if you're interested in security services, please check us out and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Again, that's microsolved.com, M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D. Until next time, thanks for checking us out on the statussecurity.com podcast. And as always, stay safe out there. Hey there, security peeps. It's Brent Houston again from statussecurity.com podcast. And it's time for another one of those status security shorts. Folks, today... It is about 88 degrees here in Columbus, Ohio. It is sunny, bright, and very warm. And I am joined today by the one, the only, the amazing Jim Clune. Now, a little bit of story here about Jim Clune. I've known him since 1988, and he was my original technical mentor, folks. He actually taught me Linux and some other cool stuff. So, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Why, thank you. And I guess I've made you into the dangerous figure you are today. Absolutely, and you are fully to blame and fully responsible. So when this karmically comes back to you, you'll know what happened. I'm warming up the car now. Fantastic. This is the short segment, and in this short segment, I have time for one very cool question I've been asking a number of folks over the last few months. So here it is, Jim Clune. Off the top of your head, what is the one thing that our listeners should be paying attention to in their information security program, the very top of the heap thing. Communication between groups is the absolutely single most important thing in information security. It has nothing to do with firewalls, technology, and you can't buy it. What you have to do is foster it. And what you foster is communication between the various groups that make up your enterprise. It is the natural inclination of all human beings to fall into a not-my-job mentality And people cannot be blamed for that, because if you take it all on, you become completely daunted. But you have to accept that that's the way it really is. And as a result, critical pieces of information that can make all the difference in terms of your information security may not be getting passed. So what you've got to do is periodically drum into people, entice them, seduce them into communicating. And you have got to look for places in which communication isn't occurring. Because I guarantee you, where there are blocks... There's animosity, there's you know, th- those other people kind of mentality, that floor, that building, that state, where people don't talk, that's where your security problems are going to be. I'm done. That is awesome. So let's dig just a little bit deeper for a minute. Tell me, 
what are some ways if you found a group of folks that uh, your security team doesn't work well with, let's say it's the mobile application development group, how do you reach out and build rapport with those guys and get them engaged? All right, so, I mean, you can go drink beer with them. That's one thing. But really, what can you do? What I found you have to do is appeal to people's common sense of responsibility to the organization and to one another. And they have it. They may not have it to you. They may not like you. But they have a general sense of uh, responsibility for their jobs and for the larger organization and for the customers, potentially, who are using the services of your organization. They've got that. They've got that feeling, and that's the feeling you have to appeal to. So what do you do? You explain the general problems that you have in your organization, the ones involving security. You explain how, and when I say explain, I don't mean in an email. You go talk to people. If, you, if you're in the security organization, set up periodic meetings. Invite people in to those meetings in which we're not going to talk tech. We're going to talk communication. We're going to talk on the, about the single greatest threat we have as far as information security is concerned. And in that email, in those communications, you appeal to that larger sense of obligation to the organization, to one another, and to the, the customer so that you can break down any potential tension that exists between you and that group. That works, and I'll tell you how it works. If other groups see other people responding to that, coming to those meetings, starting to communicate, they will not want to be left behind. For one thing, it's just the social pressure. Beyond that, they'll get the fact that if they're not communicating, they're not talking, they're potentially going to be the ones that they're caused by lack of communication. A problem, a security problem to occur, they'll come. Once you've got them, you keep them, and you keep talking to them, you're nice to them, and you keep appealing to that larger sense of obligation and mission. It works. Now, I know that one of our common friends, Kent King, once told me, I asked him, what was the best, cheapest sort of security investment you've made in the last couple of years at an organization where he used to work? And he said the number one thing he invested in was pizza. Yeah. Um, he would literally just give away pizza, get folks in a room, and start start talking to them. And, uh, you know, he said that was a fantastic approach and weapon. Is that sort of oh, along absolutely. those guidance? We, we, yeah, we brought food in all the time. People come for food. Lunchtime chat, right? You won't have to go to lunch. We'll talk to you. You may not like us, but you might like us afterward. You'll certainly like us because we fed you, and maybe you'll swallow the message as long, along with the pepperoni. That did work. Now, we, that was always a component of it, feeding people. Because commensals, right? The whole... Uh, eating with people is the way in which community is built across the board, across all of humanity. If you want to foster communication, then incorporate food into it. And I wasn't kidding about the beer either. If there's a place where guys go occasionally after work for a couple of drinks, you might want to show up there occasionally and approach some of these people and have those informal conversations. That can help. Absolutely. So thank you very much for joining me today. That's been Jim Clune. Jim, if they have questions about building these kind of relationships, uh, I know you're on the Twitter. Where can they find you out there on Twitter? What's your uh, Twitter name? No, I'm at Pop Hop, I believe. P-O-P-H-O-P. -O -P -O -P. Yeah, that is who I am. P-O-P-H-O-P. -O -P. That's awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Jim. I really appreciate it. Listeners, as always, thanks for listening. This has been another short from statussecurity.com, our podcast. I'm your host, Brent Houston. And until next time, take care. I'll see you. Uh, I'm out of here.
Absolutely. So thank you very much for joining me today. That's been Jim Clune. Jim, if they have questions about building these kind of relationships, uh, I know you're on the Twitter. Where can they find you out there on Twitter? What's your uh, Twitter name? No, I'm at Pop Hop, I believe. P-O-P-H-O-P. -O -P -O -P. Yeah, that is who I am. P-O-P-H-O-P. That's awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Jim. I really appreciate it. Listeners, as always, thanks for listening. This has been another short from statussecurity.com, our podcast. I'm your host, Brent Houston. And until next time, take care. I'll see you. Uh, I'm out of here.